Oh, hey, hi, hello. Oh, Roz, yes, your jungle red nails look amazing. Welcome to Hollywood Party. I'm glad you made it back. Today, we're going to be getting to know someone who has the girl next door persona, but she totally wasn't. We're going to do Rosemary Clooney. It's kind of juicy. So grab a drink and join the party. Rosemarie Clooney was born May 23rd, 1928. Her parents were married August 15th, 1928. Her mom, Frances, was a saleswoman who was passionate about having a career, but not so much about raising babies. Her dad, Andrew, was a shiftless vagabond, a drunk, and had no ambition. Oh yeah, we're back on track. Basically, if you're listening, if you have a really non-ambitious father, be an actor. Like, this is, the, this is the trade I'm saying. Just go ahead and go for it, because you're probably going to be amazing. They all lived in Kentucky, which was where the first flood of Irish immigrants landed in 1850 to... 1860. I know Rosemary was famous for singing songs in a really wonky Italian accent, but she is super Irish, which means her parents still had time to crank out two more kids. Betty Ann was born in 1931, and Nick, he was the host of AMC back when they showed movies, not junk, he showed up in 1934. Rosemary said, I don't think any of us kids spent more than two weeks in the same house with our parents. The kids were raised by their paternal grandparents, who gave them, her words, their first sensation of being loved. Grandpa was the mayor, and he got the girls to sing at different fundraising events. He was also super liberal, like refused to get a typhoid shot after a flood because that was an invasion of his rights. So his family just held him down and made him get it. On the flip side of that, Rosemary's lifelong best friend was Blanche May. She was a black girl, and Grandpa had no problem with that whatsoever. The year of that flood, their grandma died, and Grandpa Clooney was not in the right place to take care of three little kids. So they moved in with their maternal grandmother in 1939. She was supporting 12 children while being a night nurse. When Rosemary was touring a decade later, she and the band dropped by unexpectedly, and Grandma went outside, killed, dressed, and fried up 22 chickens for the band. How many chickens were left over? kind of feel like that's like a weird math problem that no one can solve. Both sides of the family were singers or musically inclined. Their Aunt Anne was a nightclub singer who would come around with fancy new cars and furs, but died of an accidental overdose at 25. Mom remarried with a quickness after the divorce was finalized in 1947. She only took Nick to California. The kids didn't see each other for two years, and it was pretty traumatic for Nick because he knew his sisters better than he knew his mom. When their dad heard about this, he sobered up and moved back to town for the girls. He was only able to stay sober until VE day, then he disappeared again. The girls ended up going to an open audition at a radio station, and the director told them, take mic technique lessons and I'll hire you. They were both pitch perfect, and it was pretty hard to tell them apart. Betty was slightly lower. They were so good, they started playing supper clubs. And in 1946, they auditioned for the Tony Pastor Band. He took over for Artie Shaw when he had a collapse in 1938 after his stint with Lana Turner. I'm not a fan of his. 
The girls were swimming after school, they were still super young, when they got the call to audition. They didn't have on any fancy clothes and their hair was still wet from swimming, but they got the job and signed a five-year contract with the road band. Before you start thinking, oh man, they're underage and they're traveling with a bunch of dudes, this is a bad idea, red alert, mm, it's okay. Uncle George traveled with them and no one did any funny stuff with them. Why is it called funny stuff? Like rapey stuff, pedo stuff, none of that happened. However, the girls were totally aware of all the drug use that was going on. Rosemary said the band was on everything but roller skates. She and the band ended up recording five songs for the Disney film Song of the South. And Billboard said that she was the nearest thing to Ella Fitzgerald that they'd ever heard. She had learned to control her breath by watching Tony Pastor play his saxophone. Rosemary had two singing styles, soft and throaty for solos, and funny songs had a fake accent. Additionally, she always sang with a smile because she saw Maurice Chevalier do it. She was thinking of going solo, so she entered a talent contest on the radio and won. Tony Bennett came in third place. Those two would constantly be up against each other for Grammys for the rest of their lives. When Rosemary finally went solo, her sister Betty said she was fine with it because she was sick of touring and missed out on having a teenage life because they were on the road, so she went back home. Their relationship wasn't damaged at all, but Rosemary always felt very grateful about the situation, but also kind of sad. She signed with Columbia Records on the morning of her 21st birthday. She stayed with them for nine years and recorded over 250 sides for them. During this time, she was on the Billboard Weekly charts 20 times, had four number one hits, three top 10 hits, and all of her mega hits in the 1950s were songs using a phony Italian accent. There was even one kid's song called Susie Snowflake that sold a quarter of a million in sales. Half of the record company's revenue was in children's songs at this point. Maybe that's why everyone was drunk in the 50s. Every time they turn on the radio, they're forced to listen to kid pop. Rosemary was the queen of the novelty song. That's because her producer was Mitch Miller. This is how someone wrote about Mitch in his obituary. Quote, his was a Sherman-like crusade in the 1950s on behalf of banality. So all the cheeseball songs that actual good artists were forced to sing were because of this guy. All of Rosemary's hits weren't right away, so she had to start doing radio because she needed money. Columbia was only paying her $50 a side in the beginning. Her national TV debut was on The Ed Sullivan Show in 1949. The show was on Christmas Day, and one of the songs she had to sing was called Why Don't You Haul Off and Love Me. <laughs> it's Christmas, so let's sing a funny song about, like, abuse? Is that what's going on? Around this time, Sinatra had to sing this song called Peachtree Street and wanted to sing the duet with Dinah Shore because she's the number one female vocalist. She read the song and is like, uh, this stinks out loud, hard pass, thank you. It pissed him off pretty good, so he asked, who's the newest girl at the studio? Rosemary was super excited to work with her idol, but Dinah was correct, that song was crap and did not sell very well. Come On To My House was written by William Saroyan and Ross Bagdasarian. These are the same guys who created Alvin and the Chipmunks. The song is Armenian, but Rosemary did not know how to sing with an Armenian accent, so that is how it got its phony Italian sound. 
That song was number one for eight weeks straight and is still played nonstop at Italian restaurants everywhere. That song changed her life overnight. She went from having to sit at the back of nightclubs to getting a ringside table. In November of 1950, she was hospitalized for an ovarian cyst and she thought it might be an unwanted pregnancy. She was dating and apparently banging Dave Garraway, the first host of the Today Show. And it was pretty serious, like gossip columnists were saying they were gonna get married. That didn't happen because she signed a seven year contract with Paramount and moved to LA in 1951. The only Hollywood makeover they gave her was a wardrobe by Edith Head. I will take that, that will fix anyone. Paramount wanted Rosemary to fill in where Betty Hutton left off. They even gave her Betty's old dressing room. Her agent had booked a spot for her on Bing Crosby's radio show, and she was introduced to him on the lot beforehand. She got super tongue-tied around him, which he hated, so she went back later that day, knocked on his dressing room door, and said, I'm not a numbskull. I was just terribly thrilled to meet you, that's all, and I hope you understand and hope to see you around sometime. He ended up calling her a few days later to stop by for a drink. Even though Bing was single the entire time she was available, he never tried anything with her. She was his only female friend and was invited everywhere he invited all of his dude friends which was like a lot of pre-golf tournament clam bakes. Is that a thing? Rosemary was also kind of busy dating two guys at the same time. Dante DiPaolo and Jose, she called him Joe, so we'll call him Joe, Joe Ferrer. Dante was a tall, slender dancer and Joe, well, let me read you a description of his looks from a magazine. His ears were uncompromisingly large and set at an angle unfavorable to his head. He has a nose that advances boldly in several directions. In contrast to his chins, he has two which recede beneath a large mouth full of prominent but otherwise noteworthy teeth. He has a wide chest that outmatches his narrow shoulders, a long waist and short legs. The way that magazine just dragged him, I don't know how this troll crawled up from the bowels of hell to get a job as an actor. But apparently he was very charming. I mean, with looks like that, you kind of have to be. And extremely smart. He was born in Puerto Rico in 1912, educated in Switzerland, then graduated from Princeton. He knew several languages and made it to Broadway in 1935. Joe had a major playboy reputation and had been married twice already, but wasn't yet divorced from a second wife. Paramount and Hedda Hopper warned Rosemary about him. One of the VPs at Paramount told her, nobody likes a homewrecker. Have you read your contract? She didn't listen and they were living together by 1953. And yes, she was still dating Dante. But when he went out of town to do Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, she met Joe in Texas where he was doing a play and they got married. She didn't tell Dante and said that was not her best moment. Definitely regretted not alerting him. Joe paid $150,000 cash for their home on North Roxbury Drive. That's right, we're back in our old hood. Lucy and Desi live across the street. Other neighbors were Hedy Lamar, Agnes Moorhead, Jimmy Stewart, Jack Benny, and her next door neighbor was Ira Gershwin. Actually, Ira, his wife, and George Gershwin originally lived in Rosemary's house, but moved because Ira couldn't live with all the memories he had of his brother in that house. Until Rosemary died, she was convinced that this house was haunted by a former renter, Russ Columbo. Bing Crosby would not even walk into the den of the house because he was certain that's where Russ was shot. Rosemary believed him because Bing was Russ's rival and he was a pallbearer at Russ's funeral. We know that Russ was at his friend's house when he was shot and he died at the hospital, but how to make the rules with ghosts, maybe he did haunt the house. The newlyweds didn't have time to take a honeymoon right away because Rosemary had to go make White Christmas. Irving Berlin wanted Ginger Rogers or Debbie Reynolds in Rosemary's part. 
and Danny Kaye's part was supposed to go to Fred Astaire, then Donald O'Connor, who got sick and had to back out, so the film was Bing, Danny, Rosemary, and Vera Ellen, who played her younger sister, even though she was actually seven years older than Rosemary in real life. Paramount spent a ton of money on this film and didn't rush the crew to finish the film either. Maybe because Irving Berlin was constantly on the set. Whatever the case was, it worked and it was Paramount's biggest film of 1954 and made them over $12 million. After the film was done, she and Joe honeymooned in London, but they stopped in New York beforehand to record two songs together, Woman, and the other one was called Man. On their honeymoon, Rosemary overheard Joe bragging about a recent sexual conquest to a friend. She confronted him about it. Not only did he not apologize, he didn't say he was going to stop the behavior. Rosemary said she thought she could change him and just look the other way. Always a genius move. The beginning of their marriage was mostly happy. She loved living in Beverly Hills and they got invited to all the parties on the block. They threw their parties on Monday nights because no one had an excuse not to show up. Rosemary did want the role of Sergeant Sarah Brown in Guys and Dolls, but the composer turned her down because he said she looked like a virgin, but didn't sound like one. She didn't do any more movies, ever. And when asked if she was unfulfilled as an actress, she said, acting is tough. I take my work under my hat. I can sing anywhere. All I have to depend on is a musician, myself, and the words. Her movie career actually went away because she was pregnant for five years straight. Miguel in 1955, Maria in 1956, Gabriel in 1957, Monsita in 1958, and Rafael in 1960. She was actually pregnant again in 1960, but had a miscarriage. I need a drink. Like, they're not even my kids, but let's uh, take a little break and we'll come right back. After her first kid, she went right back to work doing a radio show two times a week, then sang The Man That Got Away at the Oscars because Judy Garland was in the hospital. That song didn't win, which is a goddamn crime. Anyways, Rosemary always got her figure to bounce right back after each kid because she had a personal trainer, a masseuse, and plenty of pills. Paramount even gave her a food bodyguard because they knew she could throw down at the dinner table. Time Magazine said they took her to dinner one night and this is what she ate. Annie pasto salad, a mozzarella plate, lasagna, a chocolate eclair, sherbet, after dinner rum, a chocolate drink, and then she was still hungry, so she ordered the mozzarella plate again. Bing Crosby nicknamed her the Buffet Bandon of Bourbon County. Rosemary had her own TV show on NBC starting in 1956. They filmed it in 35 millimeter so she could lip sync and then dub it over later, just like they do in the movies. The seasons were 39 episodes long. I am telling you, we are getting so ripped off. And for most of the shows, she's standing behind something because she was pregnant and they didn't want to show that. I'm not sure why, like this is years after Lucy was specting, so nothing's new by now. We all know Joe had been cheating on her since the word go, but Rosemary started having a major affair as well. He didn't name names when he wrote his autobiography, only referring to Rosemary as lover, but she spilled the beans. She and Nelson Riddle had an affair for six years. They both kept having kids with their spouses. Nelson had six at home, but he wouldn't leave his wife because she had a weakened mental state because one of their kids died at six months old. But cheating on her wouldn't do anything. Like, what is his reasoning? Nelson arranged almost all of Rosemary's music, even though they worked at different labels. He just used a pseudonym. Rosemary started doing albums with Benny Goodman and Duke Ellington because their careers were waning. 
The combo of her and Ellington benefited both of them. She ended up humming an entire song, and a jazz critic said, even without words, Clooney is a better storyteller than most singers who have the benefit of lyrics. Ellington got a brand new record deal out of it, and she got validation that she was a real singer and not just a fad. 1957 was her last time on the charts with Mango. She also joined Bing and Sinatra for a show to promote the new Ford Etzel. Bing hated working with Sinatra because he found him to be unprofessional. At the end of the show, Etzel Ford, the car was named after him and he was Henry Ford's son. He was there and gave all three of them new cars. Rosemary went to open the door on hers and the handle fell off in her hand. She turned and showed it to Mr. Ford. He gave her his car and she said that she was the only person she ever saw driving the Etzel. She and Bing did a 20 minute radio show together, which they both loved doing because they could do it from her living room. He lived right at the street and they could drink together while they did it. One of the techs said he could drink, but she drank him under the table and never acted drunk herself. He said he'd never seen someone drink whiskey out of a water tumbler before. Uh, I have, and it was an old lady. Actually, I've seen a group of old ladies do that. Old ladies who drink are not here to play. Around this time, she did two albums with Nelson, Rosie Solves a Swing and Riddle and Love, which was recorded at the height of their affair. Duh. Joe's career is kind of not great at this point, so she has to pay all the bills and she owes the IRS $52,000. She goes to Europe to do some work, and while she's in Paris, she gets a phone call from her mom, who in her old age stays and helps with the kids. She was a much better grandparent than a parent, and her mom says, Maria's really sick, you need to come home. By the time Rosemary gets back, Maria's stable. But she had a long-ass flight to think, why is my mom calling me about my child and not my idiot husband? Finally, her mom spits it out and tells her that while she's been away working, Joe is always out with ladies. Less than one hour after she got home, she kicked Joe out. I know she's not innocent, but he didn't ever even try to be a good husband. Three weeks after she tosses Joe out, Nelson left his wife. When his wife found out that he was having an affair with Rosemary, Honestly, he banged a lot of female singers. Rosemary was just the most intense slash serious affair that he had. The wife had a mental breakdown. No kidding. Saw that coming from like a mile away, guys. Nelson ended up ending things with Rosemary, which he said was one of the hardest things he'd ever done, but he still divorced his wife in 1970. He was a hot mess. I'm glad they did not end up together. He had six kids, she had five. That's like yours, mine, and ours territory. Hard pass. When Rosemary and Joe had their divorce trial, the judge was a douche. He gave Rosemary $1 in alimony and $100 per kid in child support. Joe said at the trial that he was broke, but upon further questioning, he had made a quarter of a million dollars in six months. If we could all be that broke, right? Joe moved back in later in 1963, and we know California has interlocutory divorces, so nothing was finalized. Like most reconciliations, it was a stupid ass idea, and they got divorced for real in 1967. She recorded her last record for 11 years, and it's called Thanks for Nothing. That is an amazing title. She might as well called it, I don't give a damn if you buy this or not. Rosemary really got into politics during JFK's run for office. They're both Irish and Catholic, you get it. She ended up singing for him at the jockey club to celebrate his first year in office. She also started taking a massive amount of pills at this time. She said it was for sleep, but she'd been taking them for a while now. She said, 
a lot of women took them. My mother took them. I took downers like second all. Of course, if you take too many downers, they have the reverse effect. You can't sleep at all. Not surprisingly, this made her very moody and she was known to walk off live TV. She was also at the Ambassador Hotel when RFK was murdered. Two of her kids were with her and she was able to use her celebrity to get them the hell out of there. Because she witnessed that traumatic event, her brain refused to believe that it was even reality. So she thought it was a conspiracy. In July of that year, she walked off the stage in Reno at a nightclub and the club owner thought she's drunk. But when he went back, he realized, no, she's not, and he called the doctor. She thought the doctor was part of a plot to silence her. She drove from Reno to Lake Tahoe, where her next gig was, purposely on the wrong side of the road to, quote, play chicken with God. The club owner called Shecky Green, who was performing in Lake Tahoe, and gave him a heads up and said, you need to have a freaking ambulance ready for her because she is like nutting up. She thought this was all part of the plot, and she tossed her handbag out of the ambulance so that her rescuers could find her. Although she was totally out of touch with reality, she's still an actress, and she convinced two doctors that she just messed up her medicine and everything is fine. A family friend who was a doctor convinced her, you need to get committed, like you need to go commit yourself. So she did when she got back to Beverly Hills. She was in the hospital for one month. She said the first time she laughed was when Bob Hope sent her a bunch of flowers, and the note said, I hope it's a boy. Later on, he told her, well, that's the reason you were always in the hospital before. When she got out, her passion for singing was gone. Just for a little bit, but right now she's not into it. But she had to make money, so she had to sing. Her recovery was up and down, and she got off of all of her pills, so her weight went up from 120 to 200 in a matter of months. She said that sometimes she didn't like being fat, but mostly she loved it because she could hide behind that fat lady. She tried to quit smoking, and on the rare occasion that she was successful, her kids hated it. She was a terror to live with. So eventually she cut down to 10 cigarettes a day. The public had no idea about her breakdown at this time and thought she just cut back on work to stay home with her kids, and she was able to explain the weight gain by blaming it on living with three teenage boys. She started singing at holiday and Ramada Inns, and she wasn't ashamed of it. She was able to make a living, and the customers loved her. She felt like it was honest work. One day, she was driving in LA and sitting at a red light, and she hears someone say, Rosella? It was Dante, the guy she ghosted for Joe. She yelled out, call me, and yelled her number, which he fingered into a dusty dashboard. He called, and they had dinner the next night. They were together for the rest of her life. They would yell and scream at each other, but he doted on her and it was a really good relationship for her and it seems to be for him as well. In 1976, Bing called. He knew she'd had some troubles, but didn't say anything, just invited her to lunch and told her he wanted her to do a St. Patrick's Day benefit with him. She agreed and obviously was super nervous. This wasn't a Holiday Inn type of a thing and she got rave reviews. He called again and said, hey, why don't we do two weeks at the Palladium in London? Then they went to Ireland and then Scotland and then back to England where Prince Philip invited them to do a reception at Buckingham Palace, which Queen Elizabeth crashed and she, Rosemary, and Mrs. Crosby sat around and talked about their kids. Her sister Betty died suddenly at age 45 from two brain aneurysms. Rosemary created the Betty Clooney Foundation for the Brain Injured in 1986 and helped raise millions for research. Bing died days after she did a show with him and she didn't really know what was next. A booker came up with the idea for Four Girls Four. It was her, Margaret Whiting, Rose Marie, and Barbara McNair. She ended up quitting and was replaced with Helen O'Connell, who was a major twat and all the girls hated her. Because of all of the egos, all of the girls opened and closed the shows together. 
The first night they performed, they didn't even know the words to the last song, but it didn't even matter to the audience because their energy of just like having a good time together was infectious and they freaking loved it. This led to Rosemary recording tribute albums to everybody, like Billie Holiday, The Gershwins, Berlin, it didn't matter, she did everything. She ended up quitting Four Girls Four and going solo. She also wrote her first autobiography and went into major detail about her breakdown. In an interview, Tom Schneider asked why she was so open about such a personal issue and she said, because that's the reason the publisher gave me an advance to do it. He continued asking her stupid ass questions like, why do you work so hard? Money, she said. Around this time, she started performing at jazz festivals and in jazz clubs, so jazz critics debated if she was in fact a jazz singer. One critic was astute enough to write, just because she had the brains and ability to do mambo italiano does not make her any less of a jazz singer. Everybody has to eat. She stopped doing holiday inns and toured Japan and headlined at the Hollywood Bowl. Her warm-up routine was this. Sucking on a cough drop, humming a little bit of the best is yet to come, one good cough, and that was it. She didn't really ever stop working, but in the 1990s, people would say that she could have a little bit of a temper while working and that her weight made her look matronly. Seriously? She had five kids and was a grandmother of 10 and was in her late 60s. Why do you need to have her looking like a gilf? Like, she is matronly because she's a matron. She did make an appearance on ER with her nephew for two episodes, which she was nominated for an Emmy, and she finally married Dante in 1997. George asked her, what's the hurry? You should check this guy out. To which she responded, I'm pregnant. In 2002, she got lung cancer and it moved really fast. She was unable to accept her Lifetime Achievement Grammy in January of that year. And on June 29th, 2002, she passed away in her home surrounded by friends and family. She is buried with a marker at St. Patrick's Cemetery in Kentucky. Dante passed away in 2013 and is buried with his parents in Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Her house was torn down in 2005 because LA doesn't respect its own history. Like I hope Russ Colombo is haunting the crap out of the new owners. Now for the eternal question. Should Rosemary come to our party? She can drink without being a sloppy doppy drunk. She's funny. She will get down with whoever wants to eat. She can sing. I know we already have a few singers, but it's a nice option. And as long as we keep the pills away from her, I think, yeah, she can totally come. Also, on a side note, last week I said Solving was a Dutch town. It is Danish. So I'm sorry to any Danish people. My brain read Danish and my mouth said Dutch. Now, I know the last few parties have been a little shorter than usual. That's not on purpose. It's just the flow of their stories. But I will be taking next week off kind of. All the books on our next guest are like 800 pages each, and since I use a lot of sources for each party, I physically cannot read 1600 pages in one week and retain it. This person lived forever. It's not Olivia de Havilland, so just like cool your jets, we're not even close to getting to her. However, I will be doing a giveaway, so watch my Instagram account for that announcement. It will be a good one. Thanks for listening to Hollywood Party Podcast. For more information about this episode, head over to hollywoodpartypodcast.com and follow us on Instagram. If you like this show, tell every single person you know, like and subscribe on Apple Podcast, leave a review, it's free and it's nice to do, or listen to us on Spotify or Anchor or however you're listening to us right now. See you next time. That's that noisy girl.